Okay, we are starting chapter 32. And chapter 32, if you spell it in Hebrew, is spelled Lamed Bez, which spells out Lave, heart. And the Rebbe points out that this is no coincidence, that the chapter which speaks about Ahavas Yisrael, love of a fellow Jew, is the heart of Tanya. Because just as all of the limbs of the body depend on the heart, that's what gives them life, that's what sustains them, it is the center of the body. Well, the entirety of the Torah depends on this mitzvah. Love your fellow Jew as yourself. And the way we love our fellow Jew is indicative of the way we keep the rest of the Torah. This 32nd chapter of the Tanya is so central. And if we look at the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael, it's kind of mind-boggling. What does the Torah tell us? The Torah tells us, Love your fellow as yourself. Let's look at this very literally. Viahafta means love. You need to have a feeling of love. The Torah doesn't say behave politely. The Torah didn't say be courteous, be kind. The Torah said love. Lereacha, your fellow, that includes each and every Jewish person. And then take this word, kamocha, as you love yourself. Is that even possible? Can you love another person like you love yourself? And because this seems so mind-blowing, many of the commentators translate it non-literally. They translate it as that you have to treat others with respect, conduct yourselves with respect. You have to hear the words of the Ramban, Nachmanides. So the Ramban, Nachmanides, says like this, a person's heart will not accept that he should love his friend the way he loves his own soul. And Chizkuni says, It is impossible. How indeed is it possible that you should love your fellow like you love yourself? But if you look at Rambam, Maimonides, when he writes the law of Avas Yisrael, he translates it very literally. He says like this, Each man is, co- is commanded to love each and every one of Israel as himself. Like it says, Love your fellow as yourself. Rambam translates it literally, you need to love. And as a result of the fact that you love, then, one should speak the praises of others, and show concern for their money, just as he is concerned with his own money and seeks his own honor. So Rambam is translating this literally. You actually have to have that feeling of love towards another Jew like you have for yourself. It seems like almost unattainable and unachievable, but as we're going to look at it through the lens of the Tanya, using Kabbalah to understand it, we'll realize that this really is a central principle. Like Rabbi Akiva said, This is a great principle of the Torah. And here, this story. So a man comes to Shammai and he says, Convert me on the condition that I, you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. And what does Shammai do? That's ridiculous. That's why you want me to convert you? Get out of here. And he persists. He goes to Hillel Hazakein, Hillel the Elder, and he says, convert me on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. And he said, okay, whatever is hateful unto you, don't do to your fellow. This is the entire Torah, and the rest 
is his explanation. Now go study. Was he exaggerating? How could you say this is the whole Torah? I understand when it says don't kill, don't steal, don't gossip. Then you can say that love of fellow is the whole Torah. But what about Shabbos? How is that the whole Torah? So again, this is really mind-boggling. And yet, as we're going to look at it through the lens of the Tani, we'll see that in fact, the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael really typifies the entire Torah. So I'm going to start off with this beautiful story. It is a story of the Chedushe Harim, who was the founder of the Gore dynasty, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir of Gore. And he would receive people to his office, give them advice, give them blessings. And of course, people were crowding to come see him. So he had a secretary, Reb Bunim, who would manage the waiting room. And one time, this affluent man marches right in to the Rebbe's waiting room and says, how long is the guy in the office going to be? Because I got to see the Rebbe next. And he said, oh, sir, please give me your name. I'll put it down on the list. You can wait because everybody here is waiting to see the Rebbe. And he said, waiting list? Wait? Oh, let people who have time to wait, wait. But not me. I have an important meeting in Warsaw tomorrow and I'll be next. And he said, sir, you, you possibly don't understand. Everybody here is waiting and you have to be fair and wait your turn. And he's thinking, I don't understand. You don't understand. And he walks right over to the secretary and slaps him across the face. And everybody in the waiting room is shocked. I mean, this was a man to be respected, but in general, any person, how are you just going to slap a guy across the face? And all of a sudden, the Rebbe's door opens. And the Chaydushe Harim walks out, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, and he said, I'm sorry, I will not receive you until you ask Rebunim for forgiveness. And he goes back into his office and he closes the door. And this man turns on his heels and dashes out of the waiting room and Rebunim goes chasing after him. And he sees him leaning on his carriage and he breaks down into sobs. His whole body is racked with sobs. And Rebunim said, can I help you? Why are you so sad? And he said, you, you are the guy who destroyed all my hope. And he said, tell me what happened. And he said that he and his wife were waiting for a child for 15 years. They went to the most important, famous doctors, and nobody was able to help them. And finally, he decided that he's going to come visit the Rebbe of Gore and ask him to pray on his behalf, to ask Hashem, please have mercy and bless him with the child. And he said, now because of you, I cannot see the Rebbe. So he grabs the man by the hand. Rabunim grabs the man by the hand, schleps him back into the Rebbe's waiting room, knocks on the door, and the Rebbe opens the door. And Rabunim, the secretary, turns to the Rebbe and says, Rebbe, he swears that he will never forgive this man. Not in this world and not in the next. Unless the Rebbe blesses him with a child. And the Rebbe looked at his secretary and said, Amen. May it be the will of Hashem. And this story is so moving because it shows a person who transcends his own ego and doesn't think about himself and only relates to the other person's pain. And it wasn't about who bothered him and who attacked him and who affronted him and who disrespected him. It was about seeing the pain of another person and wishing only the best for him. So this is something, the story of Avi Yisrael is something that even though it's unusual or it's beautiful, but I wouldn't say it's unusual. I would say that the more Jewish people I meet, the more I see it's true that Jewish people really do wish the best for each other, even if they've been insulted and even if they've been hurt and even if they don't agree. At the end of the day, in their heart of hearts, Jewish people really do wish for the best for each other. 
And so let's look at this chapter, chapter 32. Chapter 32. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe taught that when one is bitterly remorseful over his sorry spiritual state, he must strive for joy by considering the following. True, on account of his body and his animal soul, he is utterly remote from godliness. Yet he has within him a divine soul, veritably, veritably a part of God. This soul, in exile within the body and the animal soul, is to be greatly pitied. One should therefore strive constantly to release it from this exile and to return it to its divine source through engaging in the Torah and the mitzvot. Such a return will bring one great joy, the joy of freedom. The knowledge that the body and the animal soul remain in their unfortunate state should not disturb one's joy on account of his divine soul, for the soul should be infinitely more precious in one's eyes. So let's put this chapter in context. This comes as a continuation of the previous chapters. The previous chapters were really demanding, if you remember. It was about refocusing the center of our being from our animal soul and our ego to our divine soul. It was being hard on ourselves in a way and saying, as I am, as an animal soul-driven person, then I am so distant from Hashem. And yes, my animal soul is in a starry state, but every time I study Torah and every time I do a mitzvah, I'm reuniting my soul with Hashem, freeing it from captivity in such a lowly, sorry state. And so, yes, the body is in a difficult state, but we are going to attain joy anyway. Why? Because the Altar Rebbe said, let your divine soul be more precious to you in your eyes than your body. So, yes, the body's in a difficult place. And we're not talking about going through financial problems. We're talking about a difficult space spiritually. The body's in a difficult space spiritually because it's so far from Hashem. And while all of that is true, we are realigning ourselves. We're saying, that's true, but that's not who I'm identifying with right now. I'm identifying with my soul. And my soul is joyful every single time it's free from captivity. If a person lives in that space, they're always in a space of joy. And that was the point of the previous chapters. The point of the previous chapters is you have to have joy. And the Altar was giving us methodology how to get here because we always, always have to be in a state of joy in serving Hashem. So now that we've come to this space, that our body is not where we give importance to, and our soul is of primary importance, now we are in a very prime position. We are a very strategic position. Look. Acting on the advice mentioned above, to view one's body with scorn and contempt and to find joy in the joy of the soul alone. We're acting on this advice. Our body is in scorn and contempt. And again, it's not about mistreating the body. I have to say it again and again so that we do not misread it. The body has to be treated with honor, with respect, with care, with devotion, because Hashem gave it to us to take care of it. And like the Mizritcher Magid, that's the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, told his son, be careful, do not hurt your body, because a small hole in the body is a huge hole in the soul. The body is important because it serves as a medium to express the soul. Just like an astronaut needs a space suit in order to act in space, our soul needs a body in order to act in this world. And in order for the body, the soul, to, to, the body to be able to express the soul properly, it needs to be healthy. We need to take good care of our body, but that doesn't mean our body is of primary importance. It means our soul is of primary importance, and we take good care of our body insofar as it expresses our soul.
So we're getting to this transcendent space that our body is not of primary importance. Our soul is of primary importance. They're going to say transcendence. Whoever reaches transcendence will stop for a minute and think that we all have our moments that we reach transcendence. And one great place where we reach transcendence is when we study Torah. One of my most favorite teachings of the Baha Torim is that in Parshas Vayigash, where Yehuda is pleading the case for his brother, Benjamin, that Joseph, his brother, who is the viceroy of Egypt, and he doesn't, Egypt, and he doesn't know that he's his brother, he tells him, you can't take Benjamin away from my father. And he explains to him how close they are. He says, Vinafshai Kishura Vinafshai. His soul is bound with his soul. How could you take him away? It would torture the man. He wouldn't even be able to live. His soul is bound with his soul. Now the Baha Torim, looking at this Pasuk, says the word Kishura, bound, has the same gematria as Torah. They study Torah together, so their souls were bound with each other. And that reminds me of the experience of every time we study Torah together. Because when we study Torah together, together we reach this transcendent space where the mundanities, the vanities, the hollowness of this world is nothing. And we reach this space together, the space of the soul. At this space, a lot of times we forget about the stupidities of the world. It's like, we're living in Hashem's space, what else matters? And then we get back to everyday life and all the stupid things bother us again. But we do experience transcendence and we do experience closeness when we're in this space of Torah. The thing is, a person who took the advice of the Alt Rebbe up until now lives in that space all the time. They're constantly living in the space of transcendence, the space of their soul. It's not like they don't have a body and an animal soul that pulls them to the materialism of the world. They do, but that's not what they give importance to. They're constantly realigning themselves, identifying with the soul. So if a person lives in this space, then... Is a direct and easy path toward fulfilling the mitzvah you shall love your fellow as yourself with regard to every Jew. So if you come to the space, now you're in an easy path to come to the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael. So not that Avas Yisrael is easy, but if you did all the work before, now it's easy. From great to small. So let's look at the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael and let's look at the difference between the way we love ourselves and the way we love somebody else. Because the mitzvah is, love your fellow as yourself. Well, there's a very big difference in the way people love themselves and the way they love somebody else. The way we love ourselves is just essential. We don't have to earn our own love. We love ourselves just because. That's essential to who we are. And the way we love somebody else is, well, it's conditional. That's why it says, from great to small. If he's great, it's easier to love him. If he's small, it's harder to love him. It's based on the merits that we, they have. And it's not just uh, physical merits or superficial stuff, even something more spiritual. We love them based on the things that they have to offer. Now, that sounds very superficial, but if you look at the way people love each other, that's just the way it is. There's an essential self-love for the self, and then there's an earned love for everybody else. Now, uh, Sheila, I see you like going like this when I said essential love. <laughs> so I, I want to know if you have something to say about that or should I bring up the question myself? 
I'll leave it to you. I'll leave it to you. Okay, because I'm wondering if you were challenging the fact that people just naturally love their own self. Is that what you were challenging? Okay. Yes. So, listen. The fact is, self-love is essential to who we are. And even people who mistreat themselves, mistreat themselves out of self-love. Meaning, they can't handle that they're miserable. They can't handle the fact that they haven't reached the goal, their goals. They can't handle that they're not the most beautiful, the most smart, the most generous. That hurts them. If some guy on the street is not the most smart and the most, not the most beautiful, is not the kindest, is not the most intellectually developed, do they care? Do they want to commit suicide? No. They only want to do it because they're running away from their own pain. They mistreat themselves because it's so important to them. They love themselves so much. They wish these things for themselves so much that to run away from their pain, then they do things that mistreat themselves. So it's like a warped form of self-love. Nobody says, well, I don't really care what's going to be today, tomorrow, what I do. It really doesn't make a difference. It makes the same difference how I conduct myself as the way somebody else conducts themselves. People don't think that way. It makes a huge difference how they conduct themselves. The problem is when they feel very inadequate and then they're in a lot of pain for that, then might come, God forbid, mistreatment. But it's only because of the fact that they are essentially in love with themselves. People love themselves. And again, because of pain, they might mistreat themselves. Yes, Jill. Um, so we love our, I would think most of us love our children unconditionally. And do we just see that as an extension of ourselves? Exactly. We love our children unconditionally. And the same thing goes with the rest of our family. Children are more of an extension of ourselves than other members of the family. But in general, family relationships are self-love. Yes, sometimes people don't get along with family, but essentially there's like this love that's undeniable, essential love. And Rabbi Shea Taub, I was listening to a class of his and he gives this really great analogy where this guy has a very expensive dinner, let's say $150 a plate, and the first course is served, the second course is served, it's a great dinner, whatever it was, and then comes the delicious dessert, chocolate parfait. Okay. So the waiter comes around and gives everybody some dessert, but skips him. And he's patient. He's like, okay, I'll get it later. Goes around, keeps serving dessert. And then he realizes everybody's been served except for him. Okay, this is not right. So he calls over the waiter. Waiter, waiter, I didn't get dessert. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry. There's no dessert left. We had exactly enough desserts for all the people in the room. And somehow you didn't get dessert. I don't know. Then all of a sudden... He spots across the room a guy eating a second dessert. Oh my goodness. He took my dessert. He's like trying to talk himself out of it. Okay, whatever. It's just dessert. But he can't help but feel that little bit of resentment. Like what a selfish person. He took my dessert. Okay, now contrast that with you're at a wedding. And the waiter comes around because everybody dessert. And you were served dessert. And then suddenly you look up and your dessert is gone. Oh my gosh, where's my dessert? Then right across the same table, you see your cutie little three-year-old scooping it up into her mouth and getting it all over her face, and her face is beaming with delight. Are you upset? No, you're probably having more pleasure out of that dessert 
than you would have if you were eating it yourself. Why? Because your child is an extension of you. And so her pleasure is your pleasure. Well, essentially, obviously, Sorrel is really that. That we're really all one. The fact that a lot of commentators like talk about how it's impossible, that's all predicated on the fact that we're separate. But when we come to realize that we're actually one entity, then another Jew's pleasure is our pleasure. And in fact, the Talmud Yerushalmi gives this analogy when it talks about not taking revenge. It says, imagine a person is chopping meat and instead of hitting the meat, he lays the knife on his own hand. Now, would it even occur to the person to then go hurt the hand that hurt the other hand? Of course not. We're all one entity. The same thing, how would a Jew think of taking revenge on another Jew? It's like a person cutting their own hands. So again, all the difficulties with Avis Yisrael stem from the fact that we think we're separate. But if we go to the essence of things and we realize we're all one, then it becomes natural and essential the same way our love for ourselves is natural and essential. Okay, Lemigadol va'ad katan, both great and small in spiritual stature. And again, great and small matters when we're looking at things from a separate place. But when we're looking at things for, from an essential place, you don't love yourself just because you're great or small. That's just not the reason. You love yourself because you love yourself, and that's it. So here are the problems. One, it's how could you command somebody to have a feeling? You're going to say, I command you to love. Well, what if I don't love? Second of all, how are you going to say that you're going to have to love everybody from great and small? If they're great, I love them more. And if they're small, I love them less. It's just how much emotion they evoke in me. And third of all, how are you going to say as yourself? Is it really possible to love somebody as yourself? But once you realize, as the altar is going to teach us now, that essentially we are one, then of course you're going to have the feeling of love. And of course it's going to be to both great and small. It doesn't really matter who's greater and who's smaller. And of course it's going to be as yourself because this is yourself. Since his body is despised and loathsome, he will not love himself on account of his body more than he loves his fellow. Now the author is going to explain three things about the way the souls are related to each other. One higher than the other. First of all, now we're looking at things from a soul space. If you're not about your body, if you're not a body person, you're an Ashama person. And when we say body, we mean externalities. If you're not a person who lives on the superficial plane, you're a person who lives at the essence of things, then this is what you need to consider. And as for the soul and spirit, the differences between his own soul and that of his fellow surely will not dis- diminish the love between them. For who can know there the soul's and spirit's greatness and excellence in their source and root, the living God. So if you're going to look at things from a soul space, and the altar says like this, we don't know whose soul is greater. There's no observable way to tell. For sure not by who's smarter and who's prettier and who's wealthier. That, of course not. But even not by who's more generous and who's more learned and who's a better mitzvah guy. Why? Because it's very possible that a person with a very high level soul might have been dragged down by his animal soul and now just looks like a regular street sinner. But nevertheless, he possesses a very high soul. So first of all, mi idea, who knows who's greater from a soul level? 
But also, if you look at the Alter Rebbe's words more carefully, he says, Who knows their individual greatness? Because not only is it possible that one soul is greater than another soul and we don't even know their greatness, but actually in a certain way, most certainly every other person has a certain greatness that nobody else has. Because as the Arizal says, the entire Jewish people are the secret of one body. And while, yes, you're going to say, you know, brain is more important than feet. But that's in one respect. The feet bring something to the body that the brain doesn't have. It keeps the body erect and upright. It mobilizes the body. The head needs the feet, just like the feet need the head. So not only we don't know who's greater, but in a certain sense, for sure, everybody is greater in some level. Okay, so this is one level. We are looking at things from a soul level. We don't know who's greater. So if you're going to look at from a soul level, everybody has a certain greatness and we don't know their source. Now look at the author of his words. He says, Belekim Chaim. And their, their source in the living God. Now the Alter Rebbe uses this same term in the beginning of Tanya, before he even starts in Hakdamas Hamalakit. He calls it the compiler's foreword. In his great humility, he called himself the compiler of Tanya, right? And he explains that the souls are generally rooted in one of three, right, center, or left. Everybody has their different source. And he explains, why is it that it's called Elikim Chaim? Why are we saying the living God? Chaim in a plural form. We're talking about one God here. Why don't we say Elohim Chai? Why are we saying Elohim Chaim? And that's because from this level of Elohim, Hashem gives life to many different forms of life. So all these different distinct forms of life get their life force from Elohim. So that's one level where we don't know the difference between souls and we're all distinct from each other. And in this level, we all have something to offer that the other one does not have. So every soul is more excellent than another soul in a certain respect. Okay, so we were talking about who can know their excellence and greatness, and now the Alter Rebbe is going to move it up a level. Okay, so that was level one. Every soul is distinct. Every soul has its special source in Elohim Chaim. Now, Bishagam Shekulan Mat Imais. Furthermore, they are actually all equal. So not only are we separate, equal yet separate, but actually at this level, we are already all the same. There's no such thing as one soul more important than another soul. If we take it up a level, we are all equal. And furthermore, va'av echad lechulana. They all have one father, one source, and within their source, they all comprise one entity. So first of all, everyone is distinct and unique in some way or another. Second of all, we're not just distinct and some are higher and some are lower, some are more great, some have a certain excellence, but actually, if you move it up a level, we're really all equal. And then if you take it up at the root of roots, we actually form one entity. I'm going to tell you a beautiful story of the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, Rabbi Arye Levin, that he once took his wife to the doctor for foot pain. And he says to the doctor, Doctor, we're here because my wife's leg is hurting us. And that's exactly what it is as the Jewish people. We really, really form one entity. At this space, we are all one. 
We're not just separate but equal. We're not just distinct, each with our own qualities. We're all really one. And I saw a great question in a Tanya that has Rabbi Khan's elucidations on the Tanya. And he asks, if we're moving up level by level, why don't we just start with level one? We are all one entity. Why does the Altar first say we're all distinct, then we're all equal, and then we're all one? Why not just say we're all one? Take it up to the highest space. And he said like this, obviously Israel has to be expressed in two ways. One way is totally disregarding anything. At one space, we are all one, and it doesn't matter. It's just an essential love, and that's who we are as Jewish people. But that's not enough. We have to also love each other as we have already evolved and come down to be in this world. And it is incumbent upon us as Jewish people, he references Holy Svarim that talk about this, that we need to constantly seek out good in other people and see the merits in them. Because it's not enough to love people in the abstract. We also have to love them in the concrete. You know that joke of the professor of child development who love children until he sees children marching in the newly laid paveway in front of his house and he starts yelling at them and giving them a mouthful and his neighbor turns to him and says, you, the professor who loves children so much? And he said, well, I love them in the abstract, but not so much in the concrete. So we can't be like that with Avas Yisrael. It's not just love them essentially like those people who love the world but can't get along with anybody in it. We have to love them essentially but then also love them practically speaking. It is on account of this common root in the one God that all of Israel are called brothers in the full sense of the word and not only figuratively in the sense of relatives or similar appearance and the like. So Jewish people are called brothers. And the Altar says not just brothers, brothers literally. Because sometimes in the Torah you will find the word achem to mean relatives or that they look like each other. But the Altar says, no, no, we're actually really brothers because we come from the same root. Now here's the difference. When we're talking about, let's say we're talking, we're looking at how we're distinct but separate, then we're talking about all one. So let's look at how it is with a child that has come to be in this world first as a thought in his father's mind that it developed into this vital seed and then forms the fetus in its mother's womb. Once the limbs are being formed in the mother's womb, now they're differentiated. There's the head, there's the heart, there are the toenails. But if we trace it up, it all comes from one vital drop, one entity where everything is truly equal. And that's how it is with us Jewish people. The difference is that once a child is born, there really are separate limbs, and those limbs really do serve separate functions. And the child is no longer truly a part of his father. So much so that the halacha mandates that if somebody finds his own lost object and his father's lost object at the same time, his lost object takes precedent over his father's. So that means that him and his father are two separate beings, and his lost objects take, takes precedence over his father's lost object. But that's not how it is with the Jewish people and Hashem. With the Jewish people and Hashem, we have never left our source. We are truly, truly always one with him, even as we have evolved to be the separate limbs of the body. And therefore, he and us are truly one. And that's why a Jew, when faced with, God forbid, 
idol worship for, for death. Jews across history have took death because they didn't want to separate from Hashem. To them, it was like impossible. Because we are one with Hashem, that's why we're still one with each other. Even as we have evolved to be in this world as separate, but really at our source, we're still one. It's not that we used to be one, now we came down and we're separate. At one point, if we trace ourselves up, then we'll be one. No, not, that's not how it is in the spiritual method of things. We are actually all one, even though, even though we have looked to be separate. If you look at the difference over here, it says, Belokim Chaim. It says over here, Belokim Chaim. That's the step one in the, in the living God. That's where we're distinct but separate. And then over here it says, Bahashem Echad. We're truly one in this place of Hashem Echad. And that's because the Jewish souls, as they have come to be in this world, they go through a process of spiritual evolution. Remember that our souls are literally rooted in the essence of Hashem. In that form, they can't be invested in a physical body in the physical world. They have to go through some type of spiritual evolution so that they can come to be in this world. So there's generally two spaces that they come to descend before they come down here. And one is the name, the, the Holy Sifi wrote, as they are rooted in the name Havaya. At that place, the term is Havaya Echad, God is one. At that space, there is no separation, there is no differentiation. And then a lower level than that is the Holy Sifi wrote, as they are rooted in the name Elohim. And in that space, there's already life to different forms of life. And that's where we become distinct and separate. Okay. Rak shehagufim mechulakim. Only the bodies are distinct from each other. This explains how it is at all possible to demand that one love his fellow as he loves himself. Self-love is innate, natural to man. Love for one's fellow is not. How can a generated love match a, nat match a natural one? According to the principle stated here, it's readily understood. One Jew need not create a love for another. The love is an inborn characteristic of his soul on account of its root in godliness, which is common to all souls. It is as natural as the love between brothers. So it seems impossible to love another person as yourself, but that's only as we think of each other as being separate. Once we realize we're all the same, we're really share one essence, you don't have to create anything new. Nobody's asking you to create love. The love is there. You just have to live at the space of the soul. So now I want to ask a question to you because we have this law that goes Chayecha Kaidman. Your life takes precedence. For example, two people are traveling in the desert. They only have one jug of water. If they split it, they both die. One of them has to drink it. Who drinks the water? The owner of the water? Or does he give it away in an act of self-sacrifice to his friend? And the law is he drinks it. So where does this fit with the law of Avas Yisrael? So the Maharal speaks about it, and he says it's two separate laws. There's the law of life, and in the law of life, your own life takes precedence. And then there's the law of love, and when it comes to love, you have to love him as you love yourself. And the Rebbe has a suggestion in a talk that he gave in, in Tafshinun, so that's 1990. It's, it's in a footnote, and he says that you might say that this law of your life takes precedence is actually a law enhancing the law of Ahavas Yisrael, love of a fellow Jew. In other words, 
It is your responsibility to the Jewish people to give precedence to your life in that situation. And that's like mind-blowing and paradigm-shifting because you know how people are like, well, it's your responsibility to yourself to take care of yourself. No, no, no. It's your responsibility to the Jewish people to take care of yourself. It's a whole different way of doing things. You need to take care of yourself because it's your responsibility to the Jewish people. And it reminds me of the very sad story of Mendel Bayless. I don't know how many people heard of him. He was accused of blood libel in 1911. This was already post-blood libel era, but, you know, anti-Semitism in Tsarist Russia. And he went through a miserable time. The, the torture that they put him through, they didn't want to give him a fair trial, the physical torture that they subjected him to. And he writes that he wanted to take his own life. But he didn't take his life because he didn't want to put a stain on the Jewish people. He didn't want the enemies of the Jewish people to say that he took his life because he didn't have a good case. So despite the misery that he went through, he held strong because he saw it as a responsibility to the Jewish people to preserve his own life. In fact, he was abducted as a young child into the Tsar's army. They would just abduct them. And he didn't have much of a Jewish education, even though his parents were observant. He didn't even keep Shabbos because he didn't know that much. But he writes that what kept him strong during that time of holding to his life, even though he would have rather just die, he said death would be better than life for him, was he remembered learning from Pirkei Avot, Ezehu Gibar HaKaivish Es Yisrael. Who is strong? He who conquers his own evil inclination. And that's that few lines from Cheder. He didn't have much of an education, but those few lines held him strong and he preserved his life for the sake of the Jewish people. I just find that so amazing because it's so much about like, you know, self-care and make sure you take care of yourself. Yeah, make sure you take care of yourself, but don't forget why. It's your responsibility to the Jewish people that you're taking care of. The Jewish people need you and they need you to be taken care of. Therefore, there can be no true love and fraternity between those who regard their bodies as primary and their souls as secondary but only a love based on an external factor. So if somebody lives on the body level, then they cannot possibly love another person for no reason. If they live with externalities, then they're gonna love another person for externalities. It's gonna be, what does this person bring to me? How do they complete me? How do they make me happier? And it's not just if they're richer or more beautiful, it's also other things, like if they're more intelligent or they're more emotionally developed. These things bring me excitement, they bring me joy, and I love them for that. But it's all gonna be on, I'm pleasuring my body, I'm taking care of my external self-image, I'm feeding my ego, and how does this person serve my ego? There's the story of the Katzke Rebbe, a brilliant, sharp Hasidic leader, and he once saw a young man eating fish. And he said to the young man, he said, why are you eating fish? And he said, what do you mean, why am I eating fish? I'm eating fish because I love fish. And he said, really, is it because you love fish that you killed the fish and cooked it and are now devouring it? No, you love yourself, and that's why you're eating the fish. And that's exactly what love dependent on an external factor is. This this, uh, 
phrase comes from Perkeyaves. Perkeyaves says, Any love that's dependent on something, once the thing leaves, the love leaves. Esther Young writes in her book, The Committed Marriage, tells a tragic story of this man who had to marry the most beautiful woman. And he found her, and he pursued her, and he courted her, and he married her. And then she got in a terrible ski accident, which ruined her looks, and he divorced her. Because he never loved her, he wanted her to feed his own ego. And that's exactly it. The author was saying like this, you want to have real love, you want to love another person like you love yourself, you have to refocus the center of your being. If you live in the body space, if that's what's of primary importance to you, you're never going to love somebody for no reason. There's always going to have to be a reason why you love them. How do they feed your ego? There's your ego and there's there's the other person and how do they feed you? They're all in competition. They're separate. They're distinct. There's no way you're going to love somebody like you love yourself if they're separate from you. But if you live in the soul space, then it's the very same thing as loving yourself. And then it becomes easy. You live in this place where we're all about souls and all souls are one. And it's just about loving your own self. It's not about loving another. Since the body separates us from each other, whereas the soul is that which binds us together, the greater value one places on his body at the expense of his soul, the more conscious he is of the differences between himself and his fellow. These differences require that he create a love for his fellow. And as said above, a created love can never equal a natural innate love. Therefore, love between people who consider their bodies as primarily important must only must be only a love based on some external factor, in which case the love is A, limited to the importance of the motivating factor, and B, destined to endure only as long as that factor is valid. Now, the Rebbe points out that the Alter Rebbe doesn't say a person can only love somebody if they disregard their body. That's not what he says. He says you have to make your soul of primary importance and your body of secondary importance. Meaning, you don't have to nullify your body. Your body still exists for you. Listen, we're not a tzaddik. We're somebody who's striving to be a benoni. In our world, a body always exists. In order to have Avas Yisrael, it's not that we have to nullify our body, but it has to be of secondary importance to us. And the Rebbe even points out that by being cognizant of our body, we can fulfill the mitzvah better. Because he said like this, he quoted his father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe, that for Avas Hashem, it has to be a love, for love of God, it has to be a love that actually permeates you to the extent that you feel it in your body. Quoting the words of Shlomo HaMelech, Shmuah Taiva Tedashen Etzem, that good news fattens the bone. Good news has a physical effect on you. The same thing, your love of Hashem should really make your heart beat make your body feel different. You should feel it. The same thing with love of a fellow Jew. If you totally disregard your body, you're not going to feel it in your body. You have to love the fellow Jew to the extent that you feel him in yourself. So it's not that you have to nullify your body, but your soul has to be of primary importance and your body of secondary importance. Now you can say, one second, this is very difficult. So I can only love another Jew if my soul is of primary importance. What if I didn't get there yet? Love of a fellow Jew also triggers that soul space within us. So even if we're not living in that soul space, but we go out of our way for a fellow Jew and we're seeking out the good in another Jew and trying to find their best qualities and, and bring the love with it out from it within ourselves, then we're also sparking the essence of our soul. You know, 
in Parak Yudchas, chapter 18, the Alter Rebbe talked about that there could be a person who lives in total spiritual decrepancy for, for such a long time. And then suddenly he's faced with a test of faith in Hashem. And suddenly he gives up his life rather than turn his back on Hashem. Because at that moment, the essence of his soul was triggered. And he suddenly remembers who he is and he realizes he will never tear away from Hashem. I heard this amazing story. Actually, I read this amazing story in Rabbi Steinsaltz's commentary where he speaks about a guy in the 17th century who lived a very immoral life. He was enticed by wealth and aristocracy and he converted. He converted so that he can join the ranks of aristocracy and feed all his pleasures. And his children remained faithful and when they would go to shul, they weren't allowed to be called up to the Torah by their father's name because their father renounced Judaism. Now this man who turned his back supposedly on Hashem, who converted to Christianity, suddenly gave away his wealth and even his life because there was a blood libel. And what sparked his soul was his love for a fellow Jew. So here was a man who converted to Christianity, right? He no longer identified with the Jewish people. And then there was a blood libel and he put his life at risk till he died to save his brethren from this false from this danger and from this fabrication. And in his case, what sparked this, this essence of his soul was his love for a fellow Jew. So just putting ourselves in the space of loving for our fellow Jew also puts us in that higher space where we really are in touch with our essence of our soul. Because you know what? At the end of the day, yes, we relate to our body. And yes, our body is more important for most of us or for many of us. You know, we live in that space of the ego. But essentially, that's not who we are. Essentially, we really are our soul. We just, you know, have a hard time reaching into that space all the time. But if we remember that, or if we act in a way of love to our fellow Jew, it calls it forth within us, and we really wake up the essence of our soul. And I'm going to end with this beautiful story of the Skullinar Rebbe. This was in March of 1945, the end of World War II. He was in Chernovitz with a lot of the Jewish community that was then Russian-governed. And it was getting close to Pesach, and he wanted to make sure that he's going to have matzah for Pesach, kosher matzah for Pesach. So he goes through great pains in order to secure the right kind of wheat that was watched the whole time. Very, very difficult, as you can imagine, in that pressing time. And he bakes a certain amount of matzahs, and he sends word to the other prominent rabbis in the community, the leaders, that he has three matzahs for each of them, matzah shmura for the seder. So they're coming to collect their three matzahs that he had great devotion to prepare. And suddenly the son of the Vishnitsa Rebbe comes and he says his father requested not three, but six matzahs. And the Skullin Rebbe says, you know, I'm sorry. I understand you want for two sederim, but I'm afraid that if I give you six, then somebody else won't get three. And he said, please, my father insists, six. He felt like he couldn't refuse such a holy man. And he gave him six matzahs. Erev Pesach comes and there's a knock at the door. It's the vision to Rebbe's son again. I have three matzahs for you. I thought your father needed six matzahs. He said, tell me, do you have three matzahs for the Seder tonight? And he said, Oh, he was embarrassed to admit that he couldn't say no, and he gave away the last matzahs. And he said, my father supposed that that's what you were going to do. And so he made sure that I secure another three matzahs so you have matzahs for the Seder. So let's summarize what we said until now. And that is that 
taking the advice of the chapter up until now of making our soul of primary importance and finding joy in the joy of the soul now takes us to a direct and easy path to loving our fellow Jew like ourselves. Because a person who puts his body primary cannot love another like himself. But we live in the space of the soul. We realize that, first of all, we don't even know who's greater than each other. But second of all, and third of all, we really, really are all one. And in that way, we really can truly come to love another person as we love ourselves. So that's the end of today's class. And I'm opening up now for questions and discussion.